1: Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature King Tut's foetuses, golden nanotechnology, and the end of the world. But first up, here's Patrick Ruby with the news.
2: From physorg.com, concrete that cleans our air. A small Dutch town called Hengelo is trialling a new type of brick on its streets, a brick that absorbs pollution. It was developed and tested at the University of Twente, the Netherlands, and contains a titanium dioxide-based additive. The titanium dioxide is activated by sunlight and binds nitrogen oxide particles from car exhaust and industrial pollution. These particles are then turned into nitrate compounds which don't pollute our air. When it rains, the nitrate compounds are washed off the road and the road is clean once again. Nitrogen oxide is a greenhouse gas and if left in the air can also cause acid rain and smog. The effectiveness of the new bricks is being tested by paving one half of a road under construction in the new type of brick and the other half in ordinary brick. The air quality on the two sides of the street will then be measured and compared. The road will be finished at the end of the year. From MIT, new news in solar power. Solar power's big problem is how to store power for use overnight. Daniel Nocera at MIT has invented a simple, cheap and highly efficient way of storing solar energy for later use. Inspired by the way leaves use sunlight to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, the team has developed their own process so that the oxygen and hydrogen can be recombined into a fuel cell to make electricity at night. The new catalyst is made from cobalt and phosphate. It produces oxygen gas from water when electricity is applied and the cobalt and phosphate combine into a thin film. They then start releasing oxygen from the water. A platinum catalyst is placed on the other electrode and can release hydrogen gas from the water. Together, the two electrodes produce the splitting of water that leaves can accomplish during photosynthesis. Currently, the available systems for electrolyzing water into hydrogen and oxygen are very expensive and require special, dangerous environments to work. The new catalyst works at room temperature and only needs neutral pH and is easy to set up. The project was funded by the National Science Foundation and by the non-profit Chesonis Family Foundation. Dandelion rubber racing our roads. A new technique has been developed to extract rubber from dandelion weeds, according to ABC Online. This rubber could be used as an alternative to rubber derived from rubber plants. A processing plant is being developed to create a new type of rubber by scientists from The Ohio State University in the U.S., the rubber will be made from the Russian dandelion, Doraxicum goxagix. White sap is extracted from the dandelion root and then processed to make the rubber. Currently, ten to twenty percent of the dandelion root can be used to make the rubber. This could be enhanced by selective breeding or bioengineering of the plants. New farming and processing techniques could produce about twenty million tons of rubber per year within a few years the dandelions would be grown in fields and harvested by the same type of tractor that pulls tulip buds. The rubber produced would be of equal quality to the traditional rubber derived from Brazilian and Southeast Asian rubber trees, and far better than synthetic rubber. The Russian dandelion has been used since World War II to make tyres, but this process would improve the efficiency and reduce the cost of production. However, the scientists working on the project have stressed that a dandelion should not be used by commercial farmers to replace food crops. And finally, King Tut might be a daddy. In a story from NewScientist.com, the world's most famous pharaoh could be a father. Scientists in Egypt are performing DNA tests on stillborn fetuses found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. They are hoping to confirm if the children belong to the ancient Egyptian ruler. The fetuses will be analysed by DNA testing and CT scans at Cairo University. Zahi Hawass, the head of Egypt's Supreme Council for Antiquities, is quite excited with the find. He says the findings might help identify the members of the pharaoh's family and might also help to discover the mummy of King Tut's mother-in-law, Nefertiti. Nefertiti was the wife of Akhenaten, the pharaoh who abandoned the traditional gods in favour of worshipping just one god.
1: an ancient case of a mummy that might be a daddy. 175 metres under the ground, scientists dig deep into the fundamentals of physics with Victoria Bond.
0: Buried deep under the border between France and Switzerland, not far from Geneva, a 27-kilometre-long tunnel represents particle physics' best hope to figure out what the world is made of and how it works. CERN or the European Centre for Nuclear Research, has built the largest and highest energy particle accelerator to date. The Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, is a mammoth. Stuffed with as much steel as the Eiffel Tower, it uses over 1,600 superconducting magnets to focus and accelerate two proton beams until they have an energy of 7 trillion electrovolts. At top speed, it would take less than 90 microseconds for the protons to travel once around the ring. When two proton beams collide, some 30 million times a second, scientists use ATLAS and CMS, two large particle detectors, to record and study the properties of quark-gluon plasma from the debris of heavy ion collisions. Okay, so at this point you might be thinking, huge proton beams, staggering energy, gluon plasma, but what's particle physics got to do with it anyway? And why do scientists want to bash protons together so badly? What scientists are hoping the LHC will give them is a little bit of insight into one of the most fundamental aspects of reality, which is what is the nature of mass? Okay, so here's what we think we know so far The Standard Model of Physics, which has been the prevailing model for the past 30 odd years, has given physicists equations that describe all of the forces in the universe, except for gravity. The Standard Model is a theory that describes three of the four known fundamental interactions among the elementary particles that make up matter as we know it. So, so far, every particle predicted by this model has been observed, except for one. That's the Higgs boson, which is also known as the God particle. So it's pretty important as far as hypothetical particles go. Its existence would explain how it is that our matter has, well, mass. Without it, every particle would be just like a photon, lots of energy, but no mass. It's speculated that the Higgs boson acts like a sort of molasses, pervading throughout all of space and allowing various particles not only to interact with one another, but to acquire a mass as well. And there's more. The Higgs-like fields have been proposed as a source of the enormous bursts of expansion which have occurred early in our universe and may even be the source of this mysterious dark energy, which seems to be speeding up the expansion of the universe as we know it. What's interesting about this model is, past about a trillion electron volt or so, the standard model makes no more sense. If you try to predict what happens when two particles collide, it generates nonsense. Scientists are hoping that this is why CERN's Large Hadron Collider will generate the Higgs boson. There's also hope that it'll help prove or disprove other big theories in particle physics. While experimentally the standard model remains unbeaten, it does have quite a few gaps. It doesn't include gravity, and it doesn't explain why the universe is matter instead of antimatter, or even why particles have the masses that they do. Theories like string theory or the supersymmetry theory have cropped up to tie up the loose ends. But they are as of yet unsupported by experimental evidence. So, apart from the Higgs, scientists will also be keeping a sharp eye out for any novel particle, things like strangelets, micro black holes, magnetic monopoles, or supersymmetric particles. Now, some concerns have been raised regarding the safety of creating black holes in a laboratory setting, One of the main ones being, will the Large Hadron Collider destroy the world? In response to such questions, Joss Engelin, CERN's chief officer, explains, In quantum mechanics, there is a probability that this pen will fall through the table. All of a sudden, it would be on the floor. Because it can behave as a wave, it can go through. We call this the tunnel effect. If you calculate the probability that this happens, it is not identical to zero. It is a very small probability, but it never happens. I've never seen it happen. You've never seen it happen. So, the question remains. Are we 3 hours, 11 minutes, and 34 seconds away from the end of the world? Check it out for yourself on CERN's official website, http colon slash slash lhc.web.cern.ch slash lhc. Once again, that's lhc.web.cern.ch LHC. At the time of this recording, we are 3 hours, 11 minutes and 34 seconds away from LHC activation. So, has the world ended? You tell us.
1: Large Hadron Collider activate. Check it out yourself on CERN's official website, lhc.web.cern.ch/lhc. <laughs>
2: oh <laughs> uh,
3: yeah i'm about to drop some particle physics in the club the lhc is super duper fly you know what i'm saying check it 27 kilometers tunnel underground design with minus 10 protons around a circle the through Switzerland advance, sixty nations contribute to scientific advance. Two beams of protons swing round through the ring, they ride till in the hearts of the detectors they're made to collide. And all that energy packed And such a tiny bit of room becomes mass, particles created from the vacuum. And then, oh, yeah, is where the animators gone. else books a collision. It's gone.
1: Large Hadron rap by Alpine Cat, Kate McAlpine, and Will Barris. Look on YouTube for the Large Hadron Rap. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2 scrcom Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Earlier, I spoke with Professor Michael Corti about golden nanobullets zapped by lasers to cure disease.
4: My name is Michael Corti, and I'm Professor of Nanotechnology in the Faculty of Science at UTS.
1: Michael, what are you working on at the moment?
4: Well, in the general area of nanotechnology, uh, we've become fascinated with the idea of using nanoparticles in a medical context. Uh, the general idea is to use a tiny particle, maybe it's a particle of gold or maybe of silver, and Stick stuff on the outside So that it will go into the body Like a sort of a self-guided missile To maybe target cancer Or a parasite Or something else Right, sort of the magic missile Well we kind of call it the golden bullet By analogy to The silver bullet which uh, takes out Vampires and such like Uh, The golden bullet is better than a silver bullet We reckon because uh, gold is inert Silver unfortunately Does react in the human body And uh, would cause some irritation. But gold, being the most noble of all the metals, basically does nothing untoward.
1: So it doesn't rust? It doesn't rust,
4: doesn't dissolve. It just goes in and it's very inertness, makes it a suitable platform, a kind of a a truck on which we can stick things and use it just to move stuff around with.
1: And there were some lasers involved with some of the medical applications?
4: Oh, yeah, that's that's right. Because gold is inert, it does nothing on its own at all, absolutely nothing. So if we want to deliver some sort of destructive payload in the body, we've either got to stick toxic drugs on the gold particle, or better still, uh, we can irradiate the gold particle with a low-power laser. And this thing has caught the attention of a number of people around the world, because the treatment will only um, be activated wherever the laser is shining, so that's quite handy. So um, that way, we avoid uh, sort of collateral damage to other parts of the body. So it's a kind of a two-way targeting system. First, we take the gold nanoparticle and we do something, and there's a variety of schemes we can employ. We do something to target it to a particular a site. Maybe it's a cancer tumor or some kind of cell in the body. So that's already targeted one way. And then we target it a second way by only shining the laser where we want the treatment to be activated. So we can get fantastic selectivity with this kind of scheme. And this is a totally new idea in medicine because in general, um, drugs, pharmaceutical compounds and so on, go into the body and they're then taken up in the bloodstream and they go everywhere. So if it's a toxic drug, you feel rotten.
1: So how small are the nanoparticles? When we're talking nano, we're, we're talking really, really tiny here.
4: Yeah, they, they definitely are tiny. Uh, They're really only made of several hundred to several thousand gold atoms. That is, that is absolutely minute. They're way smaller than the wavelength of, of light, for example. Right. They are so tiny, you can fit millions of nanoparticles across a human hair. So that's how small
1: they are. So, if they're smaller than the wavelengths of light, what sort of coloured light are you going to be shining on them to activate?
4: Oh, yeah, that, that's a special attribute of gold and, and silver and one or two other metals. Even though they're so tiny, they have a special uh, electromagnetic resonance with particular um, wavelengths of light. In the case of gold, it's around about five hundred and twenty nanometers, which is green light. So we would perhaps use a green laser. And the beauty of this is, is the resonance is quite sharp. So outside of that, nothing really happens. So um, provided we use a green laser and shine it exactly where we want the treatment to um, be activated, we will get um, localized heating and perhaps we can cauterize uh, the tumor.
1: Wow. So you can basically you take a drug that has the gold nanoparticles with the special extra bits attached... And this would go all over your body, but it would only get activated where the green laser was shining.
4: Uh, yep, that's the one mode. So um, that, in that mode, the, the gold's everywhere, but you're only activated where the laser is. But we can often do better than that because some things in the body, like um, parasites and some kinds of cancer, uh, are, are not invisible to the immune system. So provided we can raise an antibody against those things and then stick that same antibody on the surface of the gold, then it acts like a little guided missile. So it floats right. around in the bloodstream, and when it finds its target, maybe the cancer cell, it latches on. And then sometime later, when it suits us, we can irradiate with the laser. So we get a two-way targeting with that scheme.
1: If this isn't a tricky question, if the gold doesn't react with things, and that's one of the reasons it's so useful, how do you stick things to it?
4: Oh, yeah, that's not a tricky question. That's a very profound and, and good question. It turns out that while gold doesn't oxidize, and oxygen is the usual problem with metals because the atmosphere is full of this stuff, it does have a bit of affinity to sulfur. And sulfur is present in amino acids, so there's usually a way to stick an antibody or a protein or some DNA down on gold. As long as we can find the sulfur atom, that will form a reasonably good bond the gold particle. So it's a little trick of gold surface chemistry. Can't use that trick for anything else because oxygen gets there first, wow. but not for gold. Well, most of the uh, people in this field in the world, and there's not a lot of people, there's maybe only a dozen groups around the world, are going off to cancer because cancer is a big disease in the developed economies. We have an aging population and so on. But we chose not to do that at UTS. Rather, we've gone off to other targets, the first of these are the macrophage cells in your body, the white blood cells loosely. And um, these can be a host for dread parasitic diseases. And it's a bit of an orphan scenario because the big drug companies are not looking at these diseases. So we're trying to develop our own research to target macrophage cells and also the parasites themselves. And ultimately, one would want to target a parasite like malaria. Uh, it turns out, though, that malaria... Parasites are quite tricky to cultivate in the lab here in Sydney, and so we've chosen a slightly more amenable target. In the meantime, a little critter known as Toxoplasmosis
1: gondii. Oh, this one I know about. Isn't this Ah. the one that changes behavior?
4: Yeah, it's well, that's controversial, but I think the evidence is starting to point in this direction. A lot of these parasites have very strange and quite sinister effects on their hosts uh the parasites in snails, for example, that force the snail up out of the water so birds can eat it. I mean, that's pretty creepy. In the case of toxo, it has certainly been proven that it causes rats to lose their fear of cats. Now, you might wonder, why cats? Well, in fact, the real host of Toxoplasmosis gondii is the cat. It passes through other mammals on its way to being something else, but it has to go through a cat at some point in its life cycle. So a parasite that has evolved to cause rats or other small mammals to lose their fear of cats has got a huge advantage. Actually, in humans, toxo is not that uh, dangerous unless you're pregnant or you're immunocompromised or you have HIV. But it's a good model for us. We know a lot about toxo at UTS. And as a parasite, we can cultivate in the lab. And it's simply a kind of a proxy for other parasites.
1: So does this explain all those people that that have hundreds of cats in their house?
4: (laughs) Well, that part is controversial, but it obviously has been noticed that um, there are some crazy people with a lot of cats. And i put it to you that if a parasite can program a snail or a rat to do something bizarre, why are we immune? We are not immune to this kind of behavior modification. It's very creepy. It
1: is. So your gold nanoparticles may be attacking the toxoparasites?
4: Yeah, so what we do, um, the toxo lives in cells but it has to come out at a certain point because it multiplies like crazy inside the cell and basically bursts your cell from the inside. Then for a couple of hours the little toxo um, organisms, at that point they're known as tachyzoites, are swimming around in your blood like little wriggly bananas. That's the point when we target them. So um, in this sort of idea of medical treatment... You would introduce the gold nanoparticles into the bloodstream. They uh, latch themselves onto the toxos, and simultaneously you irradiate the person with the laser, or perhaps strong sunlight even might be sufficient in this case, and kill them while they're out in the blood. Unfortunately, once they get back into a cell, they become invisible to the immune system, which is the whole point while they go into the cell. So it's um, a catch-22. They become quite hard to treat then. Malaria is a similar deal, but unfortunately the malaria parasite only comes out of a cell for a few minutes. And this raises
1: the ante on the difficulty yes. of doing this in the lab. So when it comes out for a few minutes, like that is to breed or to leave the host? Find another host. Can you induce that or just have to wait? Oh,
4: good question. Yeah, maybe. Um, obviously, if you can provoke a parasite to leave a cell prematurely, you've got the basis for medical treatment. But I actually don't know how far
1: that's been taken. So with the gold and the laser process we are talking earlier. How soon do you think before some sort of uh, treatments might be available based on the gold nanoparticles?
4: Well, toxo is just a placeholder for us, um, for, for the parasite to work. Actually, as far as cancer goes, this has already reached clinical trials in the USA. So it's not yet commercially available, but um, a certain kinds of cancer, and I think breast cancer is one of those, has been targeted in trials in Texas. Now these kinds of things usually take 5 to 10 years because this is all evidence-based medicine. If it doesn't work, we sling it out because we don't want to waste our time
1: with mumbo-jumbo. Michael Cordy, thank you very much.
3: Pleasure. <laughs> Because <laughs>
1: all from us in this edition of diffusion if you'd like to contact us if you have feedback comments suggestions wild passionate praise or if you'd like to contribute to diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio then send email to diffusion at 2 SCR.com. that's diffusion at 2 scrcom or subscribe to our podcast on our website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com Contributing to the programme were Patrick Ruby and Victoria Bond. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
3: something many scientists seek they think about dimensions who live in just three but maybe there are others that are too small to see it's into these dimensions the gravity extends which makes it seem weaker here on our rank. and these dimensions are rolled up go so, so tight